the first song that uh, we sang right before that, uh, talking about temptations. Uh, sometimes we're not ready for temptations when they come. Is that not right? And we need to be prayed up. We need to be filled up. We need to be armored up because temptations are coming. So today we're looking at Peter's denial. Now we won't go into great depth today because when we get to the end of the chapter, we're going to actually look at his denial happening, being played out. But we are going to introduce that today. Uh, you need to get prayed up because uh, next week we go to Matthew chapter 26, uh, verses 36 through 46, uh, his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And truly, when we go to that text, we will truly be standing on holy ground. So we've got some serious things to look at in the weeks uh, coming as we approach Jesus' death on the cross. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word, and by His Spirit and by His power, may He do with this message and do with each one of us today what He sees fit to do for His honor and His glory. Amen. So, Peter's denial. Today we come to that. So, what do we know about Peter? Well, Peter, for one thing, was intensely loyal. Maybe the most loyal follower that Jesus had. We know that Peter loved Jesus greatly. He had great admiration for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he said, I will never forsake you, what did he mean? He meant, I will never forsake you. That was his intent. Oh, there's so much to be learned from this powerful passage. So let's look at verse 33 and 35 again. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Verse 35, Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. But when it came down to it, uh, it didn't take much at all for him to forsake Jesus. And I think one reason it happened this way, because he was pretty prideful. He was pretty self-sufficient. And when we get prideful and self-sufficient, listen to me, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. I, I call it the proverbial rug being snatched out from under you. Have you not been there yet in your spiritual experience? You kind of, you're growing, you kind of think you got it going on, and you look around, you're, you look around and you say, how come these aren't, other people aren't growing like I am? Well, just about that time of self-sufficiency, that rug gets drug out from under you and you, plump on your behind and you're on your head one. 
That's all coming if we're too prideful. So, surely we could have a little sympathy for Peter, could we not? I mean, have we not let Jesus down before? Have we not made boasts before that we didn't keep? Absolutely. I tell the guys at the jail all the time, how many times have you told your mama or your wife or your sister or your friend you were going to do better? How many times have you done that? And it didn't work out that way. So we need to be careful about our boast. So Peter had forgotten the lesson that Charles Spurgeon began to teach us a couple of weeks ago. And this is what Spurgeon says, and it is a valuable lesson. We need to learn the lesson of self-suspicion. We need to learn the lesson of what we are in the flesh capable of. We need to understand that. We need to understand that we might be one of those that would deny Christ. We need to understand it. We need to keep that foremost in our mind. So, we are like Peter. Peter didn't really understand how weak he was. He thought he was powerful. He thought he was self-sufficient. So, when, when the crisis came, when the trial came, he fled like everybody else. And, you know, that's really likely for us if we're not ready when the trial comes to do what everybody else is doing. And then he denied Jesus first, second time, and the third time that he denied Jesus, he did it with a curse. He really hammered down on it. So, what can we learn this morning? Well, let's look at the text again. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. He wasn't just talking to Peter, he's talking to all of them. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So, the, the, the shepherd was struck, and when he was struck, all the disciples, all the followers, the sheep fled. They ran from him. They were scattered. And, and I want to tell you a, a little phrase in here that easily overlooked that if I wasn't careful when I read it, I would overlook it myself. This little phrase that Jesus says, but after I am raised up. Wow, what a teaching. After I have been buried, after I have been in the tomb, after I have been resurrected. What does he say? I will go before you to Galilee. And, and you know, just think about in the heat of the moment. Just think about when we read this scripture, if we read it lightly, we'll go right over that. And I suspect for his followers that moment, it went right over their heads. Just like much of his other teaching had gone over his head. Verse 33, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter again said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So let's see what Mark and Luke add to this. Mark 14, 27-31, companion verses. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, 
Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Not much added, pretty similar. We're going to pick up on something in the Luke account that we didn't pick up in Matthew and Mark as you look at Luke 22. So Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Peter, Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So two things we see there, that Satan's going to shake him. He's going to try to uh, get him to deny Christ. But he says, and he makes a promise. Look at that promise in verse 32. What does Jesus say to Peter? I have what? I prayed for you. Wow, when the son prays, who hears? The father hears. Wow, what a promise. What a promise for us that the the Son is doing what for us? Praying for us. He says, now, when you are restored, when you return again, strengthen your brothers. Why do we get restored? Why are we brought back into the foe? That we might strengthen others that might be weak. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. So when we read these three different evangelists, we must remember that they did not write our Savior's very words. They weren't copying what He said. Later on, they are remembering the words that were spoken from His mouth. And just like all of us, when we went back to recap what someone had told us, we would all see it from a different perspective, and we would all use different language to describe it. So that's why it's not exact. They wrote what they wrote from their memories, from their memories, so the varying expressions of these different words, the different circumstances that are mentioned, the different things that are emphasized. But what we're getting from the three of them is the same substance, uh, just with different emphasis. So that's how the wording uh, becomes different. Now, what was Christ attempting to do? What was He getting them ready for? He was getting them ready for His arrest, His trial, His death, His being gone. That's what He was trying to get them ready for. And... uh, when he was struck, which he would be struck, that they were not to be disturbed by it. He was trying to prepare them. He told them they should not be surprised. Why shouldn't they be surprised? Well, first of all, it was prophesied that it would happen, that the shepherd would be struck. But it's also prophesied, and he said, that they would not be scattered for long until he's risen, until he'd gone to Galilee. Mark 16, 7, that you have before you. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So 
They should not have been surprised. But like many times we're caught off guard, so were they. So what did, what did Peter, Peter boldly say? He says, that will never be me. All the rest of them may quit you, but I'm not going to quit you. And, and these were his plans. He did not plan at this moment to bail. He had, he, 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 this is, this is good now. He had every confidence in the flesh that he was going to hang tough. Every confidence in the flesh. They were his plans. Matter of fact, Peter was overconfident. And we also should, all, all should say, if it's the Lord's will, right? Peter said, if it's the Lord's will, I won't desert you. Or, by God's grace, I won't desert you. Then he had been on good grounds, right? But just to make a bold statement, really a statement made in the flesh that he was going to do something that obviously he didn't have the capabilities to do. Verse 33 says again, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, I do pray, uh, I do pray most mornings, that before I quit you, Lord, before I quit you, Lord, just take me out of here. While I'm hanging on, while I'm going with on with you, before I quit you, just take me out of here. So let's look at that Luke 22, 31 through 34 again about the sh- uh, Satan demanding to have Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So this you uh, that's used in this verse, Satan demanded to have you, is a plural number. Satan wanted, he wanted all of them. He wanted to disrupt all of their testimonies and all of their witnesses. This this sifting like wheat, I, I, I don't think we can see, uh, it's, it's like corn that is shake, taken and shaken up and down in all kinds of ways. This, 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 what Satan wanted to do, he wanted to come against them violently to see if their faith would fail them for the moment. That's what Satan wanted. It's like separation of grains from trash, uh, which is a good thing, but in this case, separating people from from their faith was not a good thing. And he says to him, even though your faith fails, it will not utterly fail. Now, how do we know that our faith, if we have true faith in God, will not utterly fail us? How do we know that? Who saves? Who keeps? Amen. Christ saves and Christ keeps. So we know that if we're saved, our faith will never utterly fail us. So even though we will be shaken, the seed of God can never be removed. Even though we may be shaken, God putting His Spirit in us, writing the law in our minds, inhabiting us, can never be shaken. That cannot be shaken. So we may fail but will not fully fall because Christ has prayed that the Father will keep us and He will do that. Do you remember Philippians 1.6? He who started a good work in me will do what? Carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
But he tells them, upon your repentance, you'll be restored. Upon your confession. Matter of fact, we'll get into that. I'm not going to get into it this morning. But he asked Peter three times, too, to confess him and tell him how much he loved him. He was calling for his and our repentance. So I want to talk just a moment about something we won't spend a whole lot of time. But uh, I'm, I'm so thankful for Answers in Genesis. I'm so thankful for the seven seas of history. And let's just kind of go through those because I think it is a terrific witnessing tool. So people like to know a little bit about history. They like to be able to associate some kind of linear timetable with events. And the seven seas of history really help us to do this. So we had creation, and that happened at 4,000. We had uh, corruption, and that happened at 3750. Okay? So we had creation, we had corruption, we had a catastrophe, we had a worldwide flood that came in 2350. And then we had confusion. This is all in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Confusion came in 2250 when people were spread throughout the, the, the world. And then we have that 400 years of silence, the Old Testament and the prophets and then the silent period. And we come to Jesus Christ. We come to Jesus Christ. And soon after we come to Jesus Christ, we come to the cross. And we come to the crucifixion. We come to the cruelty. That Christ was cruelly treated on the cross. We come to the crucifixion, which is really cruel. We come to the burial. We come to three days in the tomb. We come to resurrection. He spends 40 days here. And then He ascended to heaven. Now here's what I want you to see this morning. He has ascended to heaven. He has been enthroned at the right hand of God. And His work now is praying for us. We have got it going on. The Son, the perfect Son of God is enthroned on His throne. He is in His work of mediation, praying for us. Does that not encourage your hearts that He prays for us? Now, there's going to be a day when He comes to bring an end to things as it is, and He will leave that throne of mediation and come and take up His throne as King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we will rule and reign with Him in His new heaven and new earth. That's coming. So I want to talk to you about that office of mediator. We see that Christ, before He ascended to the throne of mediation, he was already doing the work of interceding, right? Before he went to heaven, before he was enthroned at the right hand of the Father, he was praying for his followers. So we see that this was his work in the beginning, even before he was enthroned as the mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 says this, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is our mediator. So what is a mediator? Well, uh, when we do the gospel presentation, we come to that place that uh, uh, Eve uh, is looking at the fruit of the tree, uh, fruit of the tree, and the serpent is in the tree. And we talk about that God is going to, to bring up an enemy of the devil that stands between man and the devil. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sinners. The devil is out to kill, steal, and destroy. And we have someone that comes and stands between us and the devil. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, the same one that died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He stands between us and the devil. Christ appeared first to reconcile us to God. He died on the cross for our sins, lived the perfect life. And then we sin, and Christ again intercedes for us and continues to intercede for us. But in this text, we see Christ interceding for us, listen, as we do battle with the devil. Are you with me? We have a spiritual enemy. He's the devil. He is powerful. He is out to kill, steal, and destroy. He is out to destroy you through sin and to send you to an eternity in hell. He's out to destroy. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, when we become a follower of Jesus, He intercedes for us as we do battle with the devil. He knows it's coming. He knew what these these 11 disciples were going to do. He knew what they were going to face. And what was He doing for them? He was praying. He was interceding. Does this not make you want to shout for joy? The, the very Son of God, the one that died on the cross for our sins, the one that's going to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords is praying for us. And we need it. Because we are weak. Praise God. The devil's on a short chain. Now, did we learn that in the book of Job? What did he, what did he say? Remember they're having a council in heaven? He said, have you considered my servant Job? And God said, yeah, he's a righteous man and all these things. And the devil said, here's what I want to do. And the Lord says, you can do that, but no more. Remember? So, I want you to know that uh, the devil's on a short chain. And he's only given the slack that God seems, sees fit to give him. And he really gives him that slack for our well-being and also for his glory. When, when, the, when the devil is allowed to come against God's people, it's not for our destruction. It's for our good. But sometimes it doesn't feel like that, does it? It doesn't feel like that at all. So just remember this now. God only allows the devil to do what God sees fit to do for his glory and ultimately for our well-being. So how does Christ daily mediate for us? Well, here's what he said to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may shift you like wheat, but I have what? I have prayed for you. Do you understand, if you're a Christian, that Christ is praying for you? He is interceding for you. 
that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It may be weak, it may be shaken, it may be loosed for a moment, you may let go of it, but it will not fail. And when you have returned again, strengthen your brothers. Here's what Matthew Poole says about these siftings, these shakings. I won't spend a whole lot of time here, but I thought they were really good. Temptations are sifting. They are to purify us. They are to make us stronger. God sifts us to purge us or cleanse us. Satan sifts us, if possible, to kill, steal, and destroy, and to destroy our faith, if possible. Satan's out to do one thing. Satan's out for your destruction. God, if he allowed sifting, is out for our good. But why will that destroying our faith not happen? Because if we're a follower of Christ, who's going to keep us? Tell me who's keeping you. Right now. If you are a follower of Christ and you're going to continue to be a follower of Christ, who's keeping you? Christ is. Number two, the devil is a great or the great tempter. Well, he is slick. He is smooth. He's never, never, and never will come against you with pitchfork and uh, horns. He'll, he'll never look like that. He'll always deceive you. He'll always look good when he comes against you. Now, his little minions... The devil's underlings, the demons, those who here actively follow the prince of the world, they're helping him, but the devil is the master tempter. That's what he lives to do, to deceive people. Number three, the devil has an insatiable desire to kill, steal, and destroy. Talked about it in the men's meeting this morning. We all have a soul. Men are to be about taking care of their own soul, nourishing their soul, strengthening their soul. They're about being headed to heaven. They need to be about taking their wives and their children to heaven with them. Men, the devil knows that our children have a soul. And it is his desire that he destroy that soul and that soul spend an eternity in hell with him. That's his desire. You've got to know that. We've, we've got to know what John says. Is it 110? I came that you might have life. He came that you might, he might kill, steal, and destroy. 1010. Listen, that's the devil's, that's what he's working at. To destroy you, yours, by placing them in an eternity in hell. He especially has a desire to destroy those who are trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, the devil is chained and only allowed to trouble God's people at God's discretion. Hey, remember this. If the devil has come against you, to come against you, he had to go through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if that's the case, 
what was the Lord's intent for Him coming against you? For your growth, your purification, and for His glory. Now what we had rather do, Him just keep the devil away from us, right? But who knows best? Who knows exactly what we need and what needs to happen that we might live in such a way He gets all the glory. God allows the devil to sift. But through the mediation of Christ, the devil will not conquer. Hey, he shook these eleven. Tell me in our lifetime, as we go through life and we see things happen to ourselves and happen to our kids and our grandkids, we don't get shook. And sometimes it's a good shaking. Just remember that. God allows the devil to sift. But through the mediation of Christ, the devil will not conquer. Hey, the devil can trouble a believer. He troubled Peter and the others. But through Christ's pleading, they will not ever lose their faith entirely. Because who's prayed for you? Christ. Number six, that in the hour of temptation, we stand only in Christ's strength. Not our own, but in His strength. And when we've been restored, we should reconcile and restore others. Can you not say with me, praise God, we have a mediator. We have an intercessor that stands between us and the evil one. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So here's what I want you to see now. We don't know ourselves very well. And we're way too often overconfident of ourselves. You remember Peter? Three times. I will not deny you. The others said the same thing. Right? Did they mean it? Absolutely. Within three or four hours, they all had fled. I hope I'm getting through. I don't know that I am. We way overvalue and esteem our ability spiritually. Let, let me remind you, we can do no good spiritually without the grace of God. None. Don't overestimate yourself. You always say, I'll never desert you if you'll imperil me not to do it. We need to always depend upon Him. So, I'm, I'm going to kind of wrap this up for you in, in, in just a couple of minutes. These events that we're talking about had been predicted by prophecy and by Christ. Look at Zechariah 13, 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So that happened. Right? It happened with the 11. I believe it's still happening today. I believe that Christ and His Word is being under attack. And a lot of the shepherds are fleeing and running. Do you not see that happening? A lot of people are deserting the faith. But listen, 
If you are a true believer in Christ, that's not going to happen to you. He's going to keep us. The church is under attack. Christians are under attack. The devil is after us. We need to pray that and know that Christ is interceding for us. The sheep were scattered, but the striking of the shepherd brought forgiveness to the ones that deserted him. So you see this picture? So he was struck. He was struck for our sins. That brought us forgiveness. So you see, he had to be struck. This had to happen to him that he might pay the penalty for our sins. But even when that happened, his were scattered. But aren't we glad to know that they were restored after his resurrection? Verse 31b, you will all fall away. Not just Peter, James and John and the others. Luke twenty-two thirty-one 31b, behold, Satan demanded to have you. There's a contest, listen to me, if you haven't had a contest with the devil recently, it's coming. It's just like I tell people all the time. The church is either in a crisis, have just come out of crisis, or going into a crisis. So is that much of the time in our lives. It's an up and down spiritual deal as we deal with it. So listen to me carefully now. There is a contest with Satan coming. He is always out to kill, steal, and destroy. But praise God, aren't you glad to know that He gave us some ability, some graces to help us get past those times of attack. Now look, I think we're really being slackers not to avail ourselves to those graces, those things that He gives us. I'm going to cover just a couple of them. Ephesians 6.12, you have this. This is all in the full armor of God passage. Listen carefully. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Uh, you guys can look at your wives, and your wives can look at your husband and say, you're not my enemy. The devil's our enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but look at this. Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Y'all see who the enemy is? That is a form, formidable enemy. You are not going to overcome that enemy. You're going to succumb to his temptations and his temptings if you do not rely on the power of God. When it all comes down... Satan will be there. When it all came down, the shepherd was struck, taken to trial. What happened to all the disciples? They fled. He he is a powerful enemy. He has fiery darts. Ephesians 6.16 In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So, maybe, and I kind of suspect I know who probably will answer my question. Uh, The guy that always has the best questions is also the same guy that answers my questions the most often. So, why 
would we be such sluggards, so lazy, to not avail ourselves to the graces of God to do good defensive battle against the devil? Why, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we assemble to study? Why wouldn't we assemble to pray? Why wouldn't we regularly assemble to worship? Why wouldn't we pray every day? Why wouldn't we pray as a family? Here's a, here's a good one. He has fiery darts. He has weapons that we're not even aware of. Why wouldn't we not put on the full armor of God? He says, does he not? Put on the full armor of God. And I don't, I don't think, you know, a guy at the front of the battle, he, he, he may go days without taking off all his armor. But this is something that you take off and put on. You take off and put on. Do, you, do, you overest, do we overestimate our abilities? got to be one or the other. Do we overestimate our abilities or underestimate the devil? Or both? I think that's probably the problem. Both. We're weak. We're susceptible. If God, if God offers it to us, you know what I think we ought to say? I'll take it. The devil is continually looking for his prey. You know what I'm talking about? He's looking for you to take you down. We must stay alert. We must not get drowsy. These guys, uh, it, it doesn't matter when it gets kind of dark and it, I get a little something on my belly and I get behind the wheel of a car. I'm talking about within 10 miles, I'm miserable. You know what I'm talking about? You are so knocked out, you're so sleepy, you can't hold your eyes open. That's where these guys were. I mean, they knew something extraordinary was going on, and they were miserable. They couldn't even hold their eyes open. We must not get drowsy. Because he is sneaking around looking at a good time to destroy you. Verse 31c, that he might sift you like wheat. I'm telling you, this, this doing battle with the devil can be violent. And I think it's a life and death situation. So we need to fight like it's a life and death situation. 31c, for it is written, the sheep will be scattered in many directions for a while, but the grace of God will overcome even though the shepherds have been driven from them, the Lord will gather His sheep. You remember the last day? Sent the angels throughout the earth to gather up His. The salvation of the church depends on the Lord. And listen, I'll bet you it was a joyous time 80 miles away in Galilee when they were gathered back together. I bet it was a great time. He told them they would be dispersed, but not to worry, 
we are taught here that Christ saves and Christ keeps. We can't be trusting anything else. That Christ does the saving and He does the keeping. Verse 32a, but after I'm raised up, not only will He be raised up, but He promises to be our leader when He is raised up. What did He say? I'll go before you to Galilee. I'll meet you there. God is still allowing and allowing and expecting Jesus Christ to lead His church. They scattered at Jerusalem. Amen? But they were gathered at Galilee by the grace of God. Peter answered him, False confidence leads to foolish boasting. He is reproved and punished for his rash speaking. So what did Spurgeon say? He should have practiced self-suspicion. So we often err when we do not suspect our own weaknesses. You know what? We don't need to be going into the devil's den. We go in there, somebody better be with us. Somebody better have a rope tied to us. Because we are weak. So in closing, this lesson teaches every man. Are you ready? Remember your own weaknesses. We all have them. Matter of fact, I've, I've been reading about serious godliness. And whatever your known weakness is, you need to be working on it. I need to be working on it. I know what mine are. Do you know what your weaknesses are? And I need, hey, look, I need to be working on it till it's gone. Rely on the graces of God. Did you hear me? Rely on the power and the graces of God. When, when you are struggling, when you think you got it going on, that's just the time you don't need to skip Bible study. It's just the time you don't need to skip prayer time. It's just the time that you don't need to skip church. You need to continue and depend upon the graces of God. We need to depend upon His Holy Spirit who lives in us. God in the flesh is Jesus Christ. God the Father is the Spirit. He's in heaven. But He has sent His Holy Spirit to dwell among us. And then this, guard against stupidity. Guard against stupidity. Stupidity shakes off all anxiety. We talked about this in class this morning. Let me say it again. I don't care how deep you are into peaceful parenting. It is not working out, nor will it work out. You know what that means? Peaceful parenting means that you don't want your children to ever have to do without, to ever be uncomfortable, or even this, to never, never be anxious. Listen, you've got them for a little period of time and that is to raise them up 
to be strong and courageous in the Lord and know that the world is not a cakewalk. Let me tell you what we're raising. We are uh, uh, raising... Uh, I'm gonna, I'm, word's not going to come to me, so maybe I don't need to use it. Emotional cripples. They ain't never been nothing but affirmed in their life. They've never been told. They've never told, you didn't do that right. Listen to me. <laughs> we need to guard against stupidity that shakes off all anxiety. Being a little anxious about the outcome is good for you. It'll make you depend upon somebody beside yourself. We, we need to be careful when we are stupid that we don't fill our minds with pride. And thirdly, when we're stupid, that suppresses any desire that we have or any need to pray. So, we need to guard against stupidity. We, we, hey, when, when we are a little anxious, it's time to pay attention. I don't have us all figured out. When I'm a little prideful, I need to know that I'm in trouble. And when I'm not praying, I surely need to know what? I am in trouble. So as in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So this is what this verse means. We need to seek all our strength from God. If we have any strength that needs to come from God, that's the first time. At the same time, Listen, I've tried to explain this over and over again. It's, it's always escaped me. I believe this is such a good explanation. Let me say it again. We need to get all of our strength from God, but at the same time exerting all the personal effort that we can muster up. Y'all get it? We need to work and make the effort that it looks like that our effort is the determining factor. But all the while knowing that it's not my effort, it's the graces of God. Now let me read these two statements again. We need to get all our strength for doing spiritual things from all at the same time exerting all the effort personally that we can muster up. So, we do all we can, but knowing that all we can do is nothing and will achieve nothing without the strength of God. The apostles didn't know themselves very well, did they? You know, I, got, I don't know about y'all, but I've got this... i got this... I got this mind sometimes that that has thoughts. Sometimes I think I'm the only guy that has this. I have these thoughts and I know I'm no spiritual giant. I have these thoughts and I know I still got battles to fight. Do you, do you not ever sense that you haven't risen yet? 
And I think he gives us those. But you know what he says? Take captive every thought. To make it obedient to Christ Jesus. Claim it for what it is. Terrible, awful. I don't want to have those thoughts anymore. Before I have that thought ever again, take me out of here. How little the apostles knew themselves. How little we know ourselves. Do we not realize that I can do nothing, we can do nothing of spiritual significance without God? Did you hear me? And even if we could do anything without God, it wouldn't amount to nothing. Because it's of us. You know that verse Philippians 3.13, you see it written everywhere. You see it on helmets, you see it on... Uh, face mask, you see it on socks. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That has nothing to do with a baseball, a football, a soccer ball. But that has everything to do with spiritual things. Spiritually, I can do all things spiritually through Him who strengthens me. And without Him, spiritually, I can do... Y'all hear that? Nothing. So who gets all the glory for it? So, I'm, I'm, I really am I'm quitting. This little restored group, you remember those 11 that fled? I, I bet, I, okay, 80 miles. They were scared. I bet they covered that 80 miles in record-setting time. In other words, they got out of Jerusalem. It's probably a good thing he didn't say, wait for me here in Jerusalem. <laughs> they, they might not have taken that so well. So, that restored group, y'all listen to this, became his church. Do what? That motley brunch that deserted him became the church. I got a word for you. He's still using those kind of people today. You know what? They kind of look like me and you. Is it not good to know that the church is made of people just like Paul, James, and John, and the rest of them? That's what the church looks like. Sinners, people who would desert Christ if left alone. Christianity is not for the strong, not for the powerful, the influential, the successful or the self-sufficient, those people don't need Christ. That, well, let me, let me take that back. Those people don't know they need Christ. How about that? But you know, those kind of people, strong, powerful, influential, successful, self-sufficient, they, they, they don't even know they need Christ. But that's exactly who the church is made up of. Amen? Hallelujah. Just look at us. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 For consider your calling, brothers. Not many, of you who, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If that's not good enough, how about James 2.5? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? And aren't we glad He chose those who were poor in the eyes of the world? Strong and self-sufficient people have a hard time seeing that they have a need. They struggle in humbling themselves and coming to Christ. Christianity majors in those who are weak. Listen, weak, ignorant, ungodly sinners, enemies who often fail God. That's what Christianity is made up of, people like that. But by God's grace, you know what those kind of people see? They see their need. And they see Jesus Christ as the one that meets that need. They know that they're sinners. And right after Adam and Eve had to have an animal killed to cover up their nakedness, didn't we all begin to see that if we're sinners, we need a Savior? And I'm telling you, He is able to show sinners that they need a Savior. And they are are likely to turn their sins and turn to Christ in faith just as Peter did. So let me ask you, are you one of these? Would, would anyone like to get in line with the weak, the ignorant, the ungodly, the sinners, and the enemies of God who often fail God? Would, would anybody want to... Let's just form a line right here. Don't come, Paul. I know you'd be willing. Really? That's not the line you want to get in. But you know what? If you don't get in that line, you're not going to find Jesus. Because that describes who you were. By God's grace, do you see, do we see ourselves as who we are? We are sinners in need of a Savior. We are sinners headed to a burning hell unless we repent and turn to Jesus. So have you embraced Him and all that He has as your everything? Let me tell you, I told you, and I'll continue to tell you. I'm, I'm, I'm working on it right now. When you write your testimony, it can't have enough Jesus in it. Now, let me take that back. When you write your testimony, it can't have too much Jesus in it. Because He's our all in all, amen? So, would you become one of those people today? The weak, the powerless, those that have no influence, those that know themselves to have been enemies of God, who are sinners, who want to turn to Christ in faith. Would you come to Christ in repentance? Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. The second half of the gospel, Christ is that Savior. Repent. Quit going your self-destructing way and turn and go God's way. Today, things that you're doing that you know are awful and sinful, stop. He died for those sins. Would today you come to Christ and become His follower? Would you be about preparing for battle and advancing His kingdom? Listen, in your home and in your church. May God bless the preaching of His Word.